This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Oh, intros. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Overdue. 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 God. <laughs> <a> podcast <laughs> about the books you've been Stupid. meaning to read. My name is O. Craig. My name is O. Andrew. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, boy. We are here to talk about books like we are every week where one of us reads a book and tells the other person about it. This week, I read O. Oh, Pioneers. Oh, pioneers. Oh, pioneers. Oh. Oh. You do, you do like a soprano, like, oh, pioneers. <laughs> There's not a comma in the title, which is throwing no. me off. Like, I don't. There's not. You no. know? Because it, it's named after a Walt Whitman poem, I guess, from 1855, yeah, pi- from, Leaves of, from Leaves of Grass. Yes. And it's entitled Pioneers, exclamation point, oh, pioneers. There's no comma in there. Mm. Uh, and so she, I guess she was just writing a book about pioneers, and she was like, well, Walt Whitman wrote a book about Wrote a poem about pioneers. Well, if I just use that as a name, that's fair I, use. I'm thinking I might write. I'm Willa, I'm Willa Cather. That's fair use. Yes, it's by Willa <laughs> Cather. Uh, f- speaking of fair use, I'm going to use uh, this. Uh, I'm going to use "O Pioneers" as the title for my biography about the band O Town. Mm-hmm. Mm. Were they pioneers though? I think weren't they were they? pretty categorically <laughs> followers. <laughs> but weren't they the first think, ones oh, from I a TV think... show? I mean, maybe, but they were only on that TV show because that was a very popular format for bands to mm, be mm. in that. Not really pioneers at all. So, I mean, I guess if it was like an ironic yeah. look <laughs> it's at a, it's O-Town's a Rise book. and Fall. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> burn, burn book. Yeah. Um, so this is uh, a book that I've never read, uh, a book that you've never read, Andrew. Nope. No. Uh, but I enjoyed it, and so we'll talk about that. Okay. Um, but Andrew, Sounds you want great. to tell us a little bit about Willa Cather first? Willa Cather? Of course. I would love to tell you about Willa Cather, who Please. was born Willella Seibert Cather. Yep. Or Siebert Cather? Siebert, probably. Willella is the main thing to pay attention to, just because that's a lot of L's to put in a name. It really I, is. I, I'm, this is just one man's opinion. I'm not. I'm just a simple <laughs> country lawyer, but I think Willella has a lot of L's. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Willella DeVille. Uh, she was born in 1873. She died in 1947. She is a uh, she's a journalist. She's she wrote poetry. She wrote short stories. She wrote novels. Yep. Um, primarily known for her three books about uh, pioneer times, which <laughs> includes "O Pioneers," which you read, which came out in 1913, "The Song yep. of the Lark," which came out in 1915, and then "My Antonia," mm. uh, which came out in 1918. Yep. Don't think it has any ref- any relation to the song My Sharona. It's just people laying claim to the woman's names. A lot of music talk on this spot. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
Uh, so, but I mean, she wrote a lot of other stuff. Yeah. Um, so she, these books all are about the Great Plains, which is the right down the middle slice of North America. It's like mostly the U.S. and bits of Canada between the Rocky Mountains and the Mississippi River. It's yeah. big. It's flat. It's plain. There's a lot of it's big, big sky country, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, Um uh, so her family moved to Nebraska when she was nine. From Nebraska, Virginia. From Virginia. And Nebraska was the place where she spent most of her, you know, her formative years. She yeah. grew up there. She went to college there. Uh, she later moved to Pittsburgh and then to New York City as an adult. But she used um, her experiences in the city of Red Cloud, Nebraska, um, which is which has a population of like 900 something people now, but it does have a Willa Cather historic district that includes her childhood home. It's only 900 people now. Yeah, it's not a lot. Of I was I was in old on... Red Cloud, Nebraska, according to the 2020 census. I was on the Willa Cather Center's website, um, and they talk about how back in in the 1870s or whatever, the population was like 2,500. So yeah, well, not as many, not as many people. Not now. as many people. They all now. moved to Pittsburgh and then to New York City. I guess <laughs> maybe they did. Like You're right. Cather did. Yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> um. So yeah, the the Red Cloud Chief was the local newspaper there, and it printed some of her early work. So yeah, deep deep roots in Nebraska. That's what most of these pioneer books are like drawing from. Was her experience yes. living in that area. Uh, she became a writer for the Nebraska State Journal as a college student. Uh, during her time there, she decided to major in English instead of becoming a physician. Oh, like so, you... it's like so many of us. She decided to <laughs> pursue reverse. a career in the arts instead of making money or doing so. <laughs> two two things I saw on that though. Um, prior to going to university, when she was thinking about becoming a surgeon, uh, she had cropped her hair short and was using the name uh, intermittently William Cather because it was mm-hmm. a it was a uh, a profession dominated by men and thinking that you know women couldn't be a part of it. I mean, like all professions, yeah, like all professions, <laughs> yeah. Um, and she also the re- the reason I saw that she became like an English major and kind of shifted into a writing career was an essay she wrote her freshman year at the University of Nebraska got published in the Nebraska State Journal because it was so mm-hmm. good or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. And it wasn't a thing that she was like, please publish it. They just like took it and were like, this is good. We're going to publish it. This is how all writers dream of being discovered, by the way. It's just like you wrote something so awesome and so profound that you, with no effort or even permission, had it published in a prestigious journal. And she says, you know, apparently seeing her name in print for the first time is like what was like, oh, maybe I should. I want to do that. That's what I want. Yeah. No, that's 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 quite a feeling. Mm -hmm. Seeing your name in print. Yeah. I managed to get my name in print a couple times. While I was working, I think while I was at Wirecutter, I had a couple things like put in the paper New York. Yeah, so before before print media died, I got my name. My <laughs> my name has been in print, but not as a byline. Only as like a, a subject. Yes, yes. Only when people are writing brutal takedowns of your latest of my latest of art, your latest work. Yeah. Or mm-hmm. when in two thousand and four, I was mm-hmm. in the Columbus. Dispatch, Dispatch. Yes. Mm-hmm. For how long our voting lines were. Yeah. And it was just a fun story that wasn't about uh, any kind of systemic problems. Nope. Mm-hmm. It was just a fun, funny story about how long some of these some of these kids are standing on line to vote for a loser for a long time. It's a real long time we're here. They brought us pizza. She wrote, like I said, she wrote and published short stories, poetry, and journalism for many years um, over many publications. Yep. Eventually, she landed at McClure's Magazine, 
Yes. Uh, this is the magazine that published her first novel, Alexander's Bridge, in serialized form in 1912. So she was almost 40 before she started doing novels, and then she did a lot of novels after that. Is that where she met Edith Lewis, her partner? Yeah, so Edith, yeah. Edith, Edith Lewis is her longtime partner. They lived together for like 40 years. They're buried next to each other. Like, I, I don't even want to talk about this, the... the references to scholarship about what what was what was willa cather's sexuality i yeah. just we just don't we simply can't say <laughs> yeah well and and the second part of that which it seems for some people has been like well she must have been tortured and quiet about it and it's like i don't know it's wrapped up in the fact that she uh kept a lot of her papers and her correspondence very, very secret. It was in her will that none of that would get published. Mm-hmm. And then in 2013, after her nephew or somebody passed away, who was her second will executor, mm-hmm. uh, they finally published a bunch of stuff. And it's like, yeah, she was the person who lived a life. Like, it's there's whatever. It should have done the Johanna Spiri thing if you really just didn't burn want it all. To see it and just burn it all. Yeah, come on. One of the things um, we found from that letter collection, apparently, though, is that there's. <laughs> I found this on the foundation website. F. Scott Fitzgerald writes her to explain it's only a coincidence that some of the Great Gatsby resembles a passage in her novel, A Lost Lady. <laughs> I he was apparently mad that when he wrote Great Gatsby, it wasn't as good as Willa Cather books. Like he was, that was something that F. Scott Fitzgerald thought about a lot. She won the Pulitzer in twenty two, right? For she one of won ours? the yeah, she won the Pulitzer in nineteen twenty three for the oh. book One of Ours. It's a novel okay. that's partly about World War One. She didn't love that it was like categorized as a war book, but I think that's mostly what it's remembered for. Mm. Um, or some people, so she apparently, you know, according to what I read anyway, she used she like visited a French battlefield and she used letters and um, she interviewed like wounded soldiers to huh. do research for this war book. Um, but people like, for example, Ernest Hemingway say that she lifted descriptions from battle scenes in the, the movie Birth of a Nation. Oh, no. Which is awesome. Oh, no. Uh, she apparently had like pretty conservative politics and yeah. especially like in the in like later in her career and life, her book sort of fought, fell out of uh, favored partly because. Because of uh, because of that, huh. I don't know enough about that to like talk about it at length. It was just a thing that I clocked while I, I was reading about her. I saw references um, to to like conservatives, and I could like I don't know. I could go hunting through this book to like find a strain there if someone had sent me some additional reading material. But ideology is super hard to know. break down, and like it's it's not like Willa Cather's not going to be right about like the the independent state legislature theory in her. <laughs> like, there's not going to be an easy. <laughs> An easy tell about like whether Willa Cather would have listened to Ben Shapiro podcasts. No, if she had been alive today. <laughs> um, but <laughs> anyway, just I just it's so because you a, a lot of our a lot of our political discourse in America now. I didn't know that the, the conversation was going to go there. No, it's good. You're good. Um, a lot of it is is like. If if you if you read like Supreme Court opinions and <clears throat> like the d- debate about whether we should ad- admit new states to the country or or like expand different legislative bodies, it's all about like oh this is we've just done it this way forever and ever and it's always like when Willa Cather was living in Nebraska, it had been admitted to the union sixteen years before. Yeah, <laughs> before and I just it's 
the the amount that things I don't know. It's just all so recent. Yeah. Yes. Well, and we have this like just it just struck me like how she's writing about pioneer times, and Mm. and yes, even though she is, I don't know, like she was she was doing her work sort of in a in a in an era that we've spent a lot of time in, like a modern, like you know, uh, the twenties, thirties, forties, like an era that feels not that distant to here. And she was like she had lived experience in like (laughs) in like barely. A state, Nebraska. <laughs> Bare, yeah, and like barely post Civil War, United States. Like, mm-hmm. just and what what is interesting, and I did not read up on her before I read the novel. So, like, the novel is all about these European immigrant families who are moving to Nebraska and I guess other parts of the Great Plains, where it is like very tough to work the land at this time, and. I was like, oh, okay, I'm going to go read about her and, like, find out about how her family, like, came over. And it's like, no, they just, like, came from Virginia. They had family in the... Like, obviously, you know, you go back far enough, she probably has, you know, she has European ancestry. But it's not the one-to-one to to her life experience that I thought it might be, especially given... I don't know, maybe it's just that Little House on the Prairie looms large as a, like the fiction that is often told that is often like part of the canon for this yeah like the the romanticized american frontier it's it's interesting because the the little house books didn't come out until the 1930s so we're talking like 20-ish years after yeah yeah cather was doing her stuff but uh laura ingalls wilder was a like six or seven years older than Cather was so they huh. they would have been contemporaries. I don't yeah. they they were not living in the same like the exact same area at the exact same time ever as far as the research I sure. found was you know told me. But um, but yeah, definitely writing about the same uh like era and yep. approximate location in American history. What I found was that she she had said she was like fascinated by the immigrant communities that were moving into Red Cloud and into that region via like, you know, new rail systems and stuff like that. And so this book certainly feels like, I don't know, an exploration and a testament to what she found interesting about the Swedes and about the Bohemians, which, you know, like Czech and Middle Eastern Europe kind of folks and um, is there anything about like any native people in this book though? There is not. There's, There's like not. Okay, one yeah. one reference to it and that is another thing that is just like a whole not it's not wholly unique to this book but in terms of the types of books the books I've read that take place in this part in, of in the pi- country in pioneer times yeah. and pioneer location. Yeah, it's all about white people just coming along and setting up in land that's just free. It's just available. This is just available land. There's no <laughs> that one here. I, that I've decided to set up on because I'm a frontiersman there are maybe... and because God, and because God wanted me to have this land. Yeah, and there's... so it's all about like the hard, you know, the hard scrabble day to day existence of like trying to farm in sometimes the hostile conditions, yep. but it's not about, it's never, it's like, it's rarely to never about, uh, being a colonizer. No, it's which is not at all. Yeah, it's not at all. It's it's like there are maybe two or three references to any native people, um, but it that I can't think of a character we see. 
Yeah. And we're um, like, so manif- like the manifest destiny idea, that's like mid 1800s. Um, yeah. The, the leather stocking tales stuff by James Fenimore Cooper that yep. we talked about a couple dozen episodes ago, probably. I don't know what time is. Um, that was, those started coming out like almost a hundred years before she was writing. So, you know, the, the mythologizing of the, of the American frontier was well underway by the time that she was sure writing. And yet, and yet the, like the golden age of Westerns is yet to come. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And also Steinbeck is yet to come also, even though Steinbeck's like more of the West West California kind of stuff. Yeah. Like the show Deadwood hadn't come out yet. No, it really hadn't. In, in 1913. What? No, the show Deadwood was was like 90 years away. Yeah. Which is but, wild, you know? But it does time. Mm. <laughs> I'm wondering if like, if, you know, like Al Swearingen was alive when she was alive, right? Yeah, probably. Um, what a good show. Let's look it up. Yeah, he was born in 1845. Okay. He he would have been an older an older fellow older by the fellow time, yeah. yeah by the time she was he died before this book could come out but. well sure the, what is like my I don't have a take on this book I don't often have takes on books but what struck me in our prep and in our discussion before we started recording was just that like okay this book comes out in nineteen thirteen um, and she is remembering this place that she grew up in. She is someone from the East Coast who is then raised here and then goes back to the East Coast. And there's a lot of like parts of this book. Uh, there's a central relationship in this book between Alexandra, one of our main characters, and Carl, her de facto love interest, a, a good friend of hers from childhood whom later you know she will wind up marrying. Um, they kind of debate... Not debate, but they talk about living out in this hard-fought existence on this unforgiving land uh, versus living in the big city, and which which of those lives gives you more freedom, and which of those lives is tougher, and which of those lives leaves you a legacy at all. Um, so I think there is some like early twentieth century what world is is going away what world am i in now kind of stuff for cather maybe as mm-hmm. as someone who is like left nebraska and is going off to pittsburgh and new york city as everybody else in red cloud nebraska did as we've discussed um that she is you know remembering this place through a lens of someone who does is no longer there even though mm-hmm. you know this this becomes the the place that she romanticizes and is best known for. It. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's a real hillbilly elegy situation. Oh no! Now would she? Okay, once again, mm-hmm. do, would she have supported his candidacy for the Senate? I don't know. She can't vote in Ohio. I don't think. I mean, she might have appeared at a fundraiser. Maybe I don't know. we don't know. I don't know if this is a useful conversation. To she, be but I but I recognize that I started it. Um, <laughs> I will say that there is now a statue of her, I think, in the National Statuary Hall in uh, D.C., um, which was unveiled earlier this year because it is the sesquicentennial of her birth. She's one of less of a dozen women. Okay. Yeah. Uh, sesquicentennial? Sesqui- how, how many is that? 150. 150. That's yeah. a lot of years. Yeah. Um, and she's Mama one of less Mia. than That's a, a lot of years. Yeah. She's one of a less than a dozen women in the hall. So 
Uh, there's been a lot of like scholarship events and, and things like that this year to, to celebrate her work um, and her legacy. Though, of course, you know, we don't know what kind of podcast you would listen to. And now this, and yes, and now this is part of the celebration where we sort of <laughs> we... lightly insinuate that <laughs> don't. sort of defamatory, we, we are writing defamatory fan fiction about no. Willa Cather. No, I don't know. We're just, <laughs> we're just trying to get through the day. You know what it is? Um, pioneer, pioneer literature is complicated. It's like, it's. It really it's, is. I think because like, I, I mean, this is the second yeah, week no, in a please. row I've talked about reading the Little House books. Like those were, they weren't like formative, but I really I enjoyed them. Yeah, and it's it's part of this big ongoing, uh, like realizing that our childhood educations as like you yep. know white Americans, yep, leaves out a lot of stuff and uh, amends a lot of stuff and glosses over a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you have to when we read a book like this, you engage with it on this like romanticized level. And then also I just feel like we kind of have to spend some time in the actually, well, this is all like pretty bad. Yeah. For a lot of people like zone. Yes. You know? And none of, and sometimes, and sometimes I don't know, like there's not, not a comfortable way to hang out in that zone. And so no, you make it gets jokes real awkward about in the, here. You know, the Ohio senators who <laughs> authors might've supported. I will also, <laughs> I will also say I have very limited connections to like people who've lived on farms or people who have e- who have like worked their own land. Like I am because you're not because you're not a real American. No, I'm an, I'm a coastal elite baby, mm-hmm. um, and I've always lived in this elite bubble my entire mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's just like to your point about the romanticizing. Like it is easy for me to especially growing up reading fic- any fiction it like set in this era and in this place to just kind of like take it at face value and mm-hmm. just like, Oh yeah, that's just what happened. I guess, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it probably, it, it is the experience from a certain point of view. Yep. Like it is, it yep. is historically relevant. It's not that it, it's not that it's completely discounted by virtue of like what it doesn't spend time talking about. Or yes. thinking about. It's just, yeah. we have to come back and fill in those blanks later when we're, Talking about I, I, I feel podcast. an obligation to do yeah. that before we spend 40 minutes like talking about the book on its level. You know what I mean? I think that's totally fair. Um, yeah. And what is interesting, too, is that for the first third of this book, maybe, maybe first half, mm-hmm. I was kind of fascinated by... So the main character, Alexandra, Alexander Bergson... Um, winds up running her family farm and doing a very, very good job of it. Very successful. We'll go into the details in just a second. But it isn't until like halfway through that uh, her brothers show up. And it was right at the moment where I was literally like making a note that's like, oh, this book doesn't really seem to be about anybody having problems that this very successful <laughs> woman is like, you know, take running her family farm and seems to be doing a great job mm-hmm. uh, in an era where that might have been uncommon. And all of a sudden, her brothers show up, and they're like, "I ah, remember when all those really smart loans you took out that like bought got us all this extra land. Like, remember when we were the ones who planted the stuff? Ooh. And remember when uh, men should be responsible for all their family's belongings? That's true. They should be. I was just like, wow. The book kind of like got me really in a place where i was like oh yeah she's just doing her thing other stuff's probably gonna happen but oh oh no no here's the shoe it's dropping (laughs) (laughs) um 
And Alexander's just a an interesting character. The mm-hmm. some of her thoughts at the end of the book threw me for a loop too. So I don't know where do you want to start. It's not um, a long book, yeah, which is nice. Um, so okay, you. Th- it seems like this book takes place across at least like two phases: one where she's hanging out and seems to be doing okay, and then another one where her brothers show up and is like, "Hey, here's some conflict." <laughs> So are there like are those the only are those the main are those the main eras of the book are those the main like narrative movements or what are we talking about? There are, what? I don't know why that. No, you're right. That's exactly how I communicated it. And to hear it back to me, to me, no, having read the book was like, well, that's weird. Um, the book is is written in five parts. Um, there's there's like a ma- there's a major sixteen year time jump after part one mm-hmm. and then there are some you know smaller time jumps like months at a time i think after that maybe a year mm-hmm. at most okay um so in part one we're in rural nebraska the bergsons live there they have a farm kind of on their swedes they have this family farm um on the divide which is the, the it's like the name for this creek that kind of breaks up the land and all the, the Swedish immigrants and some of the Bohemian immigrants that are near them as well uh, have this like rough track of land where most of the farmers are having trouble mm-hmm. making it. Mm-hmm. Um, you think their soil is too acidic, maybe? I don't know. That's... I don't. Yeah. No one's running pH tests. <laughs> they, um, they should have invented pH and run some tests. <laughs> there is a funny reference to sci- scientific advancement in this book where um, one of the little girls gets her. Uh, one of the girls gets her ears pierced when she's younger and it describes how in the germ-free days or in the germless days they just put like straw in her earlobes until it healed that's an interesting way to to describe it before we knew about germs <laughs> yeah no there's before germs existed before we invented germs yeah um so we get this opening vignette with Alexander who's in her teens her little brother Emil and their friend Carl Lindstrom, um, who are in town. It's a crappy winter, and there's a fun little scene where Carl has to save Emil's cat, who's climbed up a telegraph pole. Okay. Um, we get to meet them, and they're, they all, they're nice people, and Alexander and Carl are good friends as, as teens. And we learn that Papa Bergson is dying. Um, oh, no. He's, he's not well. <laughs> um, I'm going to read this paragraph uh, that basically sums up his his life story. Okay, sure. All right. Bergson went over in his mind the things that had held him back, held him back from success in on this land. One winter, his cattle had perished in a blizzard. The next summer, one of his plow horses broke its leg in a prairie dog hole and had to be shot. Another summer, he lost his hogs from cholera and a valuable stallion died from a rattlesnake bite. Time and again, his crops had failed. He had lost two children, boys, that came between Lou and Emil, and there had been the cost of sickness and the death. Now, when he had at last struggled out of debt, he was going to die himself. He was only 46 and had, of course, counted upon more time. That's a bummer. Yeah. She's very good at, like, here's this person's life story in a paragraph. This this person is predominantly... Their their life is mostly shaped by the animals that they had who then died. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like wow. Um, well, because and, because those those are your assets, though, right? Yep, like yep. it's 
Yeah. This is this is what I own. I own this horse and that's it. And, and I, my whole livelihood is based on having this horse and oh no. Uh-huh. I was looking at, I was looking at my phone and the horse <laughs> got his leg snapped off in a prairie dog hole. Well, there and there's something in the towards the end of the book when one of the characters goes missing and uh crazy Ivar, uh as some people refer to him, Ivar. That guy sounds like he runs a fraudulent electronics <laughs> store. <laughs> Yeah, he doesn't, <laughs> but he doesn't wear shoes and he won't kill an animal. Okay. So, you know, and he does have spells um, where he is not well, but he's a good oh, guy. Oh, I thought, okay, he doesn't have like magic spells. No, I don't know if he has. Well, he does heal animals. He's good. At, he's like an animal whisperer, sort of. Okay. All right, all right, all right. Um, you can believe. Kind uh, of a ranger, ranger yeah. class sort of guy. Ranger, ranger slash druid. Um, mm-hmm. He, later in the book, when one of the characters is missing... He sees their horse and is like, yo, that guy would never treat his horse that way. That wouldn't like he wouldn't just break the brindle and, and let him run free or anything like that. Like there's brindle bridle bridle. Thank you. <laughs> um, he imagine like being able to tell that about, you know, in the same way that you're saying like your horse is like one of the th- it's a living creature, but it's also your car. <laughs> like, yeah, right. Mm-hmm. And just being able to to infer things about it. But the thing about Papa Bergston is he moved his family over from Scandinavia and Cather goes into the fact that like they come from this, you know, many of the emigres are leaving behind, you know, situations where there aren't enough opportunities for them mm-hmm. and they have this innate belief that like, well, we'll just go where there is land because we're from a place where we can't have land. Sure. So we'll go there. Mm-hmm. But the land doesn't want to be tamed, like it doesn't want to yield. And also, most of them were not farmers. Most, like at least the characters that we hear about, like they worked in cities, they were craftspeople. So they're not like not handy, but they did not. They were not raised to know how to run a, a whole working. Yeah, farm. I think that sort of we didn't we didn't talk about it in the in the biography section, but this sort of. This is this draws on Cather's experience in interesting yeah. ways. Uh, quote: Will Will's father tried his hand at farming for eighteen months, then moved the family into the town of Red Cloud, where he opened a real estate and insurance <laughs> business. <laughs> it's just, it's just, yeah. It's it's people coming out being like, yeah, this is land I can get for like cheap to free, and how hard could farming be? It, you know, it really, how how hard could it be? It can't be harder than my hard scrabble life in Europe where I'm not respected and yada, 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 yada. Yeah. You know? And then and then you do it for a couple of seasons. And you're like, man, I just I really wish I am begging you to inv- invent white collar jobs. <laughs> like, I just I really need. That's uh, what I need. And so, like, this hits home for Alexandra. Because her friend Carl, their family is pulling up and leaving, like a lot of the other families in this little region. Mm-hmm. It's been too hard. They're pulling out, um, and they're gonna. I think he moves first to St. Louis, though later maybe he moves to Chicago. And he's like, I don't know. I'm gonna learn how to engrave stuff. I'm gonna get a job. My family can't hack it out here. See you later, good friend. Mm-hmm. And they cry because uh-huh. maybe who knows? They love each other. Who knows? Um, they're teens. Um, and so then the father gives the boys, the Bergson boys, which are, it's Lou, um, another guy, I don't remember his name, um, and Emil, um, 
Oscar, Lou Oscar and Emil. Okay. Um, and he's like, listen, he gives a speech where he's like, listen, your sister is smarter than you and <laughs> you need to be good brothers to her and I'm going to put her in charge of the farm, but also she's not going to work the fields anymore. Like if you need help in the fields, you hire someone. She can make a bunch of money with eggs and butter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he says, it was one of the, my mistakes that I did not find that out sooner. <laughs> Uh, and he gives them a bunch of other tips and it sort of feels like i don't know i made a note as i was reading it like when you play a game like stardew the second time uh uh-huh. and you're like and you, oh you know you know exactly how to do the first like month of the yeah. game now you've instead been of stumbling it. through it like an idiot yes it sort of feels like he's giving them the the game fact for their farm but yeah now here's your here's your uh prima strategy guide for <laughs> how to do a farm good yes uh so he's gonna die and she tells her brothers like hey listen I'm going to go down to this down by the river where these other people have had rich people have had farms for a while. You're going to live in a van down there? (laughs) No. (laughs) Uh, But she does come up with a fun idiom uh, that is equivalent to the grass always being greener that I just think is worth sharing. Okay. She's talking to uh, Carl about about her plan. She says, you know what your Hans Hans Andersen book says about the Swedes liking to buy Danish bread and the Danes liking to buy Swedish bread because (laughs) people always think the bread of another country is better than their own. Uh huh. Anyway, I've heard so much about the river farms, I won't be satisfied till I've seen them for myself. Uh, (laughs) And one of the things that she learns while she's down there is from some university, some guy who went to university, hoity-toity, that Mm. maybe the crop of the future is alfalfa, (laughs) which actually does turn out to be true. Okay, I don't know. I couldn't. All right, I don't even. It's a sprout. A gun to my head. I would not. I couldn't alpha. tell you. I know the little rascal alfalfa. I've and never it's eaten. Just like, yeah, it's just like a weird little sprout. Yep, yep. And so she strikes out on this idea to. She's going to take on a bunch of debt and buy up a bunch of land, like use all the loans to buy the land from the people that are moving. Okay. And kind of set them up for success. And her brothers are skeptical because their dying dad finally got them out of debt. But she's like, listen, I have a plan. You got to spend money and make money, baby. That's what she says. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then we do the 16-year time jump. And I do want, at this point, want to shout out Cather's, like, she's pretty good at first sentences sometimes. Like first in a chapter. First, first in a chapter. A, first after a break. The first chapter in the book is uh, one January day 30 years ago, the little town of Hanover, anchored on a windy Nebraska tableland, was trying not to be blown away. Pretty good. Huh. The beginning of part two, it is 16 years since John Bergson died. His wife now lies beside him, and the, uh, beside him, and the white shaft that marks their graves gleams across the wheat fields. Huh. Boom. So they dead. They dead. Uh, and so then we get... Kind of a, an evolution of where all these characters are. Emil went off to college. Alexander's really good at farms. Um, Carl comes back from the big city. He is now on his way to Alaska to do some prospecting because huh. he didn't like his life in the big city. Yeah. And he has a hookup up in Alaska. God, just that that consistent vein of eh, things aren't really working out for me out here. I'm gonna I'm gonna go out to where I perceive it will be easier. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Somebody's got a going concern in Alaska and he's mm-hmm. going to go join him. 
Never mind that by the time you've it's like cryptocurrency. By the time you've heard about it, the time to it's make gone. money there is has passed. No, yeah. All my apes are gone. <laughs> all my apes are gone. Uh, and so the the middle of this book, we have like a parallel thing where there's the Alexandra and ooh Carl's back in town mm-hmm. thing. Bow, yep. Bow. Um, and we back in town. Yeah. And we also have. Um, Emil is back from college. He's a strapping young lad who also went away to university, so his brothers don't trust him anymore. Uh, and <laughs> he and wonderful, yeah. Um, and he is developing a friendship with a married woman named Marie uh, Shibata. Why you sound so uh, so uh, skeptical of that? Well, she uh, lives on the old Lindstrom farm with Frank Shibata. They uh got married a few years ago and it's uh-huh. not a great marriage mm-hmm. she you know they they were into each other when they were teens her father didn't approve and put her in a convent so she <laughs> ran away from the convent and they ran mm-hmm. away and got hooked up like you know got married in st louis mm-hmm. and uh but after that they never quite like clicked you know he's just they're just they're just not that into each other. It's, okay. It's not great. Frank is kind of, he tends towards angry emotions. She is very, very- Like light. anger? Yeah. Okay. Uh, she is- <laughs> It's one of my favorite angry emotions. Very likable and, and lovable. And, you know, to her credit, like, or not to her credit, but to hear her tell it, she tried her best with him, but like, it's not, they don't have reciprocal feelings for each other. It never quite works. Okay. Um. There's a fun little beat here where she doesn't like things that make him angry and doesn't, you know, want him to, like, go out into the world and lash out. So one thing, uh, she hated to see the Sunday newspapers come into the house. Frank was always reading about the doings of rich people and feeling outraged. He had an exhaust, inexhaustible stock of stories about their crimes and follies, how they bribed the courts and shot down their butlers with impunity whenever they chose. Frank and Lou Bergson had very similar ideas, and they were two of the political agitators of the county. So they would do great on lefty Twitter. I Yeah, I just made a note that was <laughs> like... Would, they, would be, just, they would be too online now. Every day she comes in and he's like, have you seen this tweet? <laughs> uh but so she is she's not enthused with her time with frank uh and he doesn't seem too enthused he seems kind of bummed out by the whole deal so she has been spending some time with emil back from college and they clearly have feelings from each other for each other nah, don't know what to do for about in, it for and from each other i guess and it's good it winds up with emil running off to spend a year in in mexico to to like not cause trouble Mm-hmm. They're they're as frank as they can be with each other, and he's like, "I gotta go. We can't mm-hmm. do this." Sure. Um, and the other thing that happens is like, as I said earlier, the part in the book where all of a sudden Alexander's brothers show up, and they're like, "You're a woman, though," <laughs> and we think that this Carl guy is a gold digger, and if you marry him, he's gonna take our land. Mm-hmm. And she's like, "So what? I could give him my land if I want." Um. And they confront Carl, and Carl feels very ashamed of himself and is like, well, I guess I'm not going to stay here. I am going to go off to Alaska like I planned. Okay. 
Yeah, go go pan for gold up there in, in, in the... Did you ever play Yukon Trail? I the... did play the Yukon Trail. Not as good as Oregon Trail. No, not as good. Mm-hmm. Uh, was it... I played a version of the Yukon Trail that was like pretty heavily like animated. It had a lot of art. Yeah, yeah. Yes. It's one of those uh, like late 90s sort yep. of Macintosh mm-hmm. games. Mm-hmm. 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 Anyway, um, that's... Th- <laughs> that's <laughs> my contribution. <laughs> So this conversation between Carl and Alexander is what I alluded to earlier with the like big city versus life in the country stuff Mm -hmm. where she has put all of her hopes in Emil because and later in the book she like we get a note of her being contented with her life because she successfully worked this land and she successfully uh got Emil to go off to college and is he is has the temperament and the knowledge and the spirit to like meet the wider world like she mm-hmm. thinks that her world is really small but that she knows that that's not true and she is like feels good about what she's done for Emil right okay and she says to Carl like that's the freedom I want like the freedom that you had to go off into the city is like what I want for Emil and what I think is true freedom And he says, and I just want to read this, freedom so often means that one isn't needed anywhere. Here you are an individual, you have a background of your own, you would be missed. But off there in the cities, there are thousands of rolling stones like me. We are all alike, we have no ties, we know nobody, we own nothing. When one of us dies, they scarcely know where to bury him. Our landlady and the delicatessen man are our mourners, and we leave nothing behind us but a frock coat and a fiddle or an easel or a typewriter or whatever tool we got our living by all we have ever managed to do is to pay our rent the exorbitant rent that one has to pay for a few square feet of space near the heart of things we have no house no place no people of our own we live in the streets in the parks in the theaters we sit in restaurants and concert halls and look about at the hundreds of our own kind and shudder Dang, that's, Carl. That's, that's mean for Carl to say this stuff about me and every person. That <laughs> He's not wrong. It's it's like it's it is New York. I love you, but you're bringing me down. Is yeah, what that this is. is. This is the original why I'm leaving New York. Yep. Blog post <laughs> from this guy. Now, it, 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 there is both. There is both a truth to that and a like. I am projecting everything wrong with my life onto like yes. this broader class of people instead of reckoning with the reasons why it's a problem with me specifically. You know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, and sh- and she disagrees. Like she does not. Alexandra does not find this particularly persuasive. Like she thinks being aware of that world and being out with other people and like having to work this land day in and day out makes your mind very small and stiff is the word that she uses for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just like there, it, it's a fascinating conflict between the two of them in the middle of this book that is kind of existential. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And also <clears throat> he has been uh, convinced by her brothers that he should leave town because he doesn't have any prospects and is only there to take her land. <laughs> so mm-hmm. he's feeling bad about himself. Yeah. Um I think for the Alexandra thing, like I do want to mention there's a quote on Willa Cather's tombstone that is from the book My Antonia that says Oh, is that the the repeating thing? Um I, I saw the quote that was that that is happiness to be dissolved into something complete and great. 
Oh, what am I thinking? I don't know. Uh, there's a, um, there's another, yeah, it's a, there are only two or three human stories and they go on repeating themselves as fiercely as if they had never happened before. Um, this is a, why is this? I think that might be from this too. Yeah, no, yeah. it's a quote from this book. It's just, I'm trying to find where it, where it is. It's just like a plaque that's somewhere. Oh, maybe. Yeah. Um, um it's just like there's a there's another part in here where a character is is thinking about someone who has died, like mm-hmm. returning to this land and becoming a part of it and being part of its story, and that the land's story is almost more important than the story of the people who lived on it. Um, so yeah, just that's kind of without a okay. Specific, this this is oh, from yeah. the sorry this is from the library walk in in New York City. Oh apparently. okay. Oh wow! Plaque of a a quote from this. Whoa! And it's just repeating over and over. Yeah. Huh. Hmm. Yeah. Powerful stuff. It is. Right. Mm -hmm. Am I right? (laughs) Um. Sorry. No. And she's. I mean, she's got a way with words. Like here's here's Carl seeing Alexandra and talking about what it is to see her. Even as a boy, he used to feel when he saw her coming with her free step, her upright head and calm shoulders, that she looked as if she had walked straight out of the morning itself. Dang, lady. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> we, the rest of us also have to write sentences sometimes. <laughs> yeah. um, so the, the book from here, after the men have left and Alexandra's kind of on her own, there's a part three where she's basically alone in winter, Connecting, attempting to connect with Marie, not having a, a great go of it. Um, we get an allusion to some recurring dreams she has where a non-specific giant man carries her through fields of wheat. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of the... I don't know if it's supposed to be spiritual or sexual or both. Mm-hmm. She doesn't seem to know. Um it isn't until towards the end of the book where she kind of like acts on any sort of romantic feeling. There's a lot of references to her, like not really having a sense of what a love life would be. Like she obviously has feelings for Carl and that's about it. Uh And there's going to be some trouble with a meal that I'll talk about in a second that she has some self, like she uh, evaluates her role in pushing Emile and Marie together as friends, realizing that like her brain was not considering Emile as a distinct... She was projecting her own kind of like a-romanticism onto him. Okay. Um, and not understanding that what she was doing was maybe pushing two people together okay. in, mm-hmm. a, in a bad way. Mm-hmm. So the like... The climactic part four of the book, Emil comes back from Mexico. His best friend, A-M-E-D-E-E. And there are some accents in there. Huh. I think it's Amayday. Okay. That sounds, Um, I mean, this is as good a pronunciation as any, (laughs) I I think. He has a son now. There's an earlier scene where he has a wedding. It's very fun. There's a big church fair where they all hang out together and Mayday does this cool prank, Andrew, where he turns off all the lights in the building that they're having this like you know fun fair in. I already love this prank. This is a great prank. And he talks to all the boys going to the fair ahead of time. And the plan is that when the lights go out, they're supposed to kiss their sweethearts. 
uh, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> what? And sure. And he goes. He says, "Hey, Emil, uh, Marie is doing like a like a t- kind of a tarot card fortune reading, and because you don't have a sweetheart, can you just like be near Marie to blow out her candle when I shut all the lights off?" Mm-hmm. And Emil's like, "Yeah, totally." And then he shuts the lights off, and he and Emil kisses Marie because mm. he does love her. Uh, and they sort of confess their love for one another. But he's going to go off to law school in Michigan, and then good old. A matey dies from a burst appendix because it's the 19th century. Yeah, it's just people just, I don't even know why we list the cause of death for anybody who died before like 1900. Because it's always, like you always just die of <laughs> being it alive, being, it, it being the olden times and he, nobody knowing anything about it. <laughs> I will say the, the book does say like if they had, if he had said anything about feeling bad three days sooner, they would have caught it. He was like, uh-huh. he had just had a son and he was working. He had just got bought a bunch of new farming equipment that he had to work to like yeah. make it worth it. And he wasn't going to talk to a doctor and he should have. But um, during his funeral, <laughs> Emil is like, yo, this music is music has never given anyone epiphanies before but the music at this funeral is making me feel like i need to go see the love of my life and do something about it before i Mm -hmm. leave town okay well he does and they go hang out in the mulberry orchard and frank good old angry frank (laughs) has been drinking because of the funeral and all the things that have been going on in town Mm -hmm. and uh he sees Emil's horse and goes inside and gets his gun. He doesn't quite know what he's doing. The way that Cather describes him is as someone who had gotten into the habit of seeing himself always in desperate straits. Okay. It gratified him to feel like a desperate man, she says. Mm-hmm. Okay. So he's, he's not even like, yo, I'm going to kill him. It's just like, I'm angry. Time to mm-hmm. grab my gun, I guess. Mm-hmm. He does Commit some murders. <laughs> some cool murders. Just whatever. As you might think. And then he does turn himself into the police after he runs away. Okay. Um, and then the last... So, like, that's the tragedy. That's the tragedy of the lovers in this in this book. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the close of the book is Alexander actually going to Lincoln, Nebraska to visit Frank in jail and being like, I kind of blame Marie and I kind of understand what you did and I'm going to do everything I can to get you out of the sentence early. And she's just really kind of worked up about it. And Carl comes back into her life. They reconnect Mm -hmm. and she's, she's going to get married to him. He tries to defend Marie and Emile to her um, by just kind of saying like they were two people who couldn't not have gotten into that situation with each other. They were too lovable and too in love. Mm hmm. Um, but you know, later in their lives, Carl and, and Alexander decide to get together and that's about, that's their story. Mm-hmm. And that's it's kind beautiful. of the book. <laughs> like, okay. You say, you said you didn't have a take about this book, but that you did like it. Yeah. I think and my, is, yeah, I think my take now is really part of that, um, it's part of the Alexandra Carl 
tension in the middle of the book of like what okay. are the what are the people in this part of the of the country supposed to do they came from a world where they didn't think they had a future what is it to eke out a future here mm-hmm. and what are the pressures on them to go off and do something else mm-hmm. and then how do all of those feelings and social pressures like spur people to actions that they wish they could take back or sure. you know or you know what legacies can they hope to leave behind or not okay um and that that feels i don't know she's writing about it and it's all set in the 19th century but thinking about it being written by someone a decade or two removed who has since moved out of that part of the country and and like mm-hmm. looking back on it feels like an interesting way to to think about this book um from a perspective but what i liked about it was yeah. mostly the prose i think the the style of writing it's pretty it's blunt is not the right word and but nor would i like say it's kind of purpley either it, it is mm-hmm. this interesting mix of kind of a journalist's eye and ear combined with a, a poet's sensibility okay um yeah, I mean, she did. She did do those. She yeah, did do all those things. So that makes sense. Yeah, but I, the the some of the shorter sentences that I read, I think, try to capture that. Like, here's just some stuff that's happening. Here's some stuff that's happening, and here's like one powerful, like poetic mm-hmm. beat within within a thought. So that's mostly what I liked about it. I I think the it is a pretty economical story for what it is. It is about sure. Um, but also to what we were saying at the at the top of the show, like it is hard not to think about the elements of this era and where the story is set mm-hmm. that she's not talking about, you know, mm-hmm. um, other displaced people and and things like that. So yeah, it it feels very both intimate and about grand things and there's a lot of stuff in between those two impulses that is not in the book Mm -hmm. so i don't know it's a neat neat book yeah by an author i'd literally never heard of before yeah i'd never heard of her either and and this happens not as frequently on the show now that we've been doing it for a decade but still every once in a while we will decide to read a book that's like a hundred and something years old and it will be from an institution who we maybe should have known about the yeah, entire time. For real. <laughs> you know, that that's mm-hmm. kind of what's fascinating about it is that like reading it, I I felt like I should have heard about this book by now. I felt like that is both a compliment to it and just remarking on on its era and its style. Well like maybe maybe the fact that we we haven't is a sign of some of the stuff that we were talking about at the beginning of the episode where just like the discourse has moved beyond yep, this yep. this specific type of uh pioneer like frontier That's literature onto onto things that um display it in like a more nuanced and more uh, more complicated light i don't know yeah that's probably a good point too probably a good point that you So she's also i mean willa cather's like one of how many Statues of women, did you say? Yeah, like the, a dozen. Yeah, like the the building that is dedicated exclusively to statues. Like maybe, we, yeah, maybe we should have known. <laughs> maybe we should have known. If there's a whole place that's gonna you know celebrate 
150 years since she was born. Mm-hmm. Maybe should have the Susquehannock. Yeah, yeah. The the Pesca the Saskatchewan Centennial. The Pesca the Pesca Centennial. Yeah, it's a year, hundred years of fish. <laughs> uh, thanks for letting me tell you about this book, Andrew. You're welcome. You always thank me, and I'm always. You're always welcome to tell me about books. Yeah. You know, on this the the book podcast that we do just trying to practice gratitude <laughs> as, a, as a small business yeah in my daily life <laughs> trying to practice gratitude mm-hmm. um i'm gra- i'm grateful for our listeners too and they can email us what they're grateful for overdue pod at gmail.com hit us up on social media at overdue pod thanks to rebecca juliana michael renee ruth tabby jennifer melissa and many more a lot of folks responding to the launch of Sand by Me on the main feed. Go back and listen to that if you have not. It's our Sandman mini-series. Andrew will tell you a little bit more about how to get those episodes early in just a second. Uh, our theme, yeah, I will. Yep. Maybe. Our theme song is composed by Nick Larangis. Uh Andrew, if folks want to know more about the show, where do they go? Overduepodcast.com is our internet website up there. We have uh, the whole list of books that we have read and the ones that we are going to read including the schedule for the next month. Craig will tell you about the April yep. schedule here shortly. Yep. Uh, we also have a Patreon project, patreon.com slash overdue pod. Use that to support the show directly with heart, with cash money. Imagine me. I'm, I'm not going to do it because it would be bad audio, but imagine me shaking a coffee can full of nickels like Lucy in the Charlie Brown Christmas <laughs> special. <laughs> nickels, nickels, nickels. The beautiful sound of clanking nickels. Yeah. Um, we, you can get access to our Discord server, uh, get uh, access to Sand By Me episodes early, uh, sit in on bonus streams. Uh, we posted that episode about the Choose Your Own Adventure uh, Ghost Train book where everybody in the chat was just like losing their minds in real time along with us. It was super fun. We recommend it. Um, and we've we've been talking about other stuff to to do for Patreon folks, so we will we will share things with you as we are ready to do them. But yeah, it's a fun community to be part of. Yeah. Uh, Craig, April, what, what, what? We are kicking off April with "Normal People" by Sally Rooney. We have a special guest, uh, Vanessa Zoltan from Hot and Bothered, um, Not Sorry Productions. Take a listen to that. Um, then we have. All the Birds in the Sky by Charlie Jane Anders. The uh, Candy House by Jennifer Egan. Returning to Jennifer Egan's work. I'm very excited. Uh, and then, what would, what what did you say? The Doll... The Roll Doll's House? Doll, doll's, uh, doll's House. Doll for Nothing. Um, Charlie and the Chocolate you? Factory. We'll, we'll close out our regular episodes for the month. And here we go, Andrew. Our bonus episode. Our bonus stream... A novelization. Let's a go. Let's a go to the Super Mario Brothers movie, not the new one, the one from the nineties. <laughs> we are we have imported copies on their way as we speak. That's what the that's what the website says. I have not. I don't know if I believe them. Um, we'll they're see. they're coming through pipes. We're gonna hit a box and the book will pop out. Mm-hmm. Um. So yeah, tune in for that but then, again. But then a Goomba will walk into us and we'll lose our books. Well, I got to jump over him, I you guess. You just got to jump on him. I got to be a jump man. Um, mm-hmm. So as Andrew said, go to patreon.com slash pod to join us for that stream. Get more information on that. Uh, but it will always come out on the main feed later because we love you. We want you to listen. Yeah. That's it. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening to our podcast for another week.
Thank you for for being book pioneers with yeah. us, boldly discovering new works that came out 110 <laughs> years ago. <laughs> Until we talk to you next time, try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.